Hello, I'm Doug Hadaway. You're listening to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to achieve ambitious goals for people and the planet. Today, we talk to Kirsten Lodel. She co-founded a nonprofit called Lyft when she was a 19-year-old college sophomore. Since then, more than 12,000 Lyft volunteers have worked with nearly 100,000 individuals and families. The Lyft team sought to create a new narrative about fighting poverty in America, and they began with an aspirational statement of Lyft's purpose, lifting families out of poverty for good. That bold promise prompted some soul-searching. The team wrestled with a question facing any organization that declares an ambitious goal. Can we hold ourselves accountable to it? Kirsten tells us how the Lyft team answered that question. Kirsten, you've told me that this process of thinking aspirationally about public communications sparked interesting and sometimes uncomfortable internal conversations. And I'd love to talk with you about that experience and hear lessons you'd share with other leaders who want to inspire and engage and share lessons with people. But first, you and a friend started Lyft when you were 19 years old and sophomore in college. That's right. What was the spark? So the spark goes back even to before college. I was raised in a very socially conscious family. And as far back as I can remember, my mom, who was a public school teacher and principal, would do these social justice tuck-ins as a little kid. And I mean, really, now that I'm a parent of three kids, I think about this a lot of just the early consciousness of of our obligation to give back and learning about Dr. King and Marion Wright Edelman and Cesar Chavez and such as a kid and how much that shapes you. And it's, it's been interesting to reflect on this moment in time with the power of young people's leadership and advocacy as exemplified by the Parkland students in Florida. Mm, yeah. Because, you know, I think by the time I was a sophomore, junior in high school even, I had that really strong turned on justice nerve um, activated. And what was going on in the country at that time was welfare reform. It was the Bill Clinton administration. And I think an, an interesting dynamic because you had this Democratic administration pushing through welfare reform. And I think a pretty heated conversation happening in the country at that time about what our relationship was going to be with the concept of a safety net, with mm. investing in striving families. And you saw this resurgence of a lot of the insidious Reagan era welfare queen narrative and framing around families. And that just really caught my interest. And I was weirdly obsessed with welfare reform as hmm. a junior in high school. <laughs> and uh, I uh, managed to construct an internship my senior year of high school where I was working as an assistant teacher at a Head Start program for predominantly homeless families, um, mostly single head of household families with women at the helm. And I was so amazed by the contrast between this welfare queen narrative, Mm -hmm. which directly applied to the women I was working with, um, and what I was actually seeing, you know, women who were primary caregivers, primary breadwinners, getting their kids to school even though they were transitionally homeless, and in most cases had had their educations interrupted because they became parents, but had drive, strive, huge aspirations for their families, 
and no sense of how to actually get there. They were stuck in this just unthinkable hamster wheel of trying to make ends meet. And Mm -hmm. even in the immediate context of the Head Start Center where we were working, there was kind of this animus between the teachers and the parents, and even there, a real mm. sense that it was the you know the, the parents' fault. We can support the kids, but the parents have made mistakes. So that's where the initial spark went off of just saying, "Gosh, far from welfare queens, you know these women are superheroes." I can't even imagine um, the resilience and the capability, and we should be putting the wind in their capes and. From there, that that's where all the ideas that ended up becoming hmm. Lyft, which I started in college, and now 20 years later um, has grown by, right, quite a bit, but that, that same spark is still there. And unfortunately, I'd argue that societal narrative, uh, that welfare queen narrative in various forms, maybe is raging stronger than ever. You see that in the political conversation today? or Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. And we've talked of moochers we've talked of any any number of other things that plays out in how we're talking about immigration and mm-hmm. the jobs conversation etc unfortunately and it's more racialized than ever so we've got a lot of work still yeah. to do and in the meantime people keep on keeping on lift mm-hmm. families are making incredible progress all along and uh, that is where you see the power and resilience of people who don't have the privilege to uh you know, be affected by political cycles. They yeah. got to keep making it work for their families. Mm-hmm. And speaking of narrative, that's when mm-hmm. we met. Uh, when you were looking for sort of a fresh way to talk about Lyft's approach, um, you were already recognized as a as an innovative thinker in this space, and Lyft was out there with a powerful model. And you were looking for a new narrative to help spread the word, extend the reach of the thinking, and help you know, shape uh, the conversation about how we fight poverty in America. Um, So at the time, what were the challenges you faced in communicating about Lyft and the unique approach that you all take to to the work? Poverty is not a topic that people want to talk about. And Mm -hmm. you can see even in democratic politics. I mean, I think if you look at the last couple of conventions and such, there was hardly, if any, utterance of poverty mm-hmm. as a word there's been this co-opting into the concept of middle class which i think we can agree is pretty different from poverty but the sense that it's it's such a kind of unappealing bugaboo topic in our society that no one wants to talk about it it seems mm-hmm. overwhelming it seems intractable it seems depressing and so that's what we're up against as an organization that's combating poverty. And in a lot of ways, um, you know, even just figuring out our relationship to that word has been a journey. Um, but I think we felt in coming into the work with you that it was important to not be a part of masking the challenge that we're talking about and not be a part of masking that there are tens of millions of people living in poverty in this wealthiest of societies and many more right on the brink that to the extent we mask we mask the issue we make it easy to ignore it mm-hmm. so we felt strongly about that but the question was how do you engage in a conversation with poverty without people wanting to run out of the room mm-hmm. and focus on something else um, and so it is bringing in the aspiration the joy the possibility which in our day-to-day work at lyft i think we'd always felt Mm. but we were struggling to communicate um again in a way that was 
engaging versus repelling and overwhelming hmm. for audiences. Yeah, you talk about overwhelming, meaning people see it as such an intractable, complex problem. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Particularly domestically for an American audience, which was an irony that we would find people could talk about poverty in a global context and really struggled to see it in an American context, I think in part because in this society it's so tied up to in our history um, mm-hmm. and a complicated history that we really haven't done the truth and reconciliation work to contend with where poverty in America is so inextricably tied up with our history of genocide and slavery and um, you know all of the structural aspects related to race, xenophobia, et cetera, that really have perpetuated it. So I do think, especially for us as an organization also working to invest in parents and primary caregivers of young children, seeing this as the high leverage determinative place to invest because the family system is what will what will break the intergenerational cycle of poverty mm-hmm. um, if we rally around it. But again, I think we felt you know, an American audience can deal with kids in poverty to some degree, but once you then start getting to talking about the parents and adults, that even adds a whole nother level. So mm-hmm. we, we were in a tough spot yeah. when we came to you of seeing all this potential in our families, but not having a narrative that we felt um, could, could sh- show that to the, to the country. Saying that your goal using the language of the field was to break the intergenerational cycle of mm-hmm. poverty, as you said. And you wanted to start at an aspirational place, think of fresh ways to talk about this that would touch on the joy of the work, as you mm-hmm. said, on the hope and the and the big ambitions that you all had. So we came up with a different way to say that which we expressed in a tagline at the time. Uh, Can you tell us about that? It was a lot more than a slogan, wasn't it? Yeah, so we really pushed ourselves to think about if what is our ultimate aim here. And what we came up with was this concept of working to lift people out of poverty for good. And it was that for good piece that was so powerful. There was a double entendre to it of a sense of permanence and longevity. So this is not just about remediation. This is about alleviation for good, Mm -hmm. breaking that cycle. Because one of the things that we were paying close attention to when we were doing this work is that two-thirds of all people who exit poverty within a year will cycle right back into it within the next five years. So what does it mean to actually create sustainability? in social mobility. So that was part one of for good, but then of course the second piece was for the greater good of society and wanting to push hard on the idea that this is all of our challenge to take on, that the measure of a society is in fact how it takes care of people who are at the bottom of the economic strata, facing all sorts of barriers and ensuring that there is mobility and that we see a sense of collective good in all of it. So the for good piece was really powerful um, to us and something we we really rallied around. Mm-hmm. And you've told me that 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 language and having a conversation about what are we aiming to achieve here, how do we express it, sparked an important internal conversation. Some people were nervous about it. Um, tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, well, so it's interesting. We got super jazzed 
about the idea to the point that I'm, I'm sitting here staring at a mug right. that has it printed on it. We pasted it up on the walls of all of our offices. We got t-shirts made. And I think that the process of having to really reflect on that, to see it, um, sparked some important internal conversations of how much of our work really truly is lifting people out of poverty for good. We named an aspiration. It was authentic to our goals, but I think it caused much deeper introspection around, is the work really doing that? Um, Or to the extent we know some of it is what percentage is really doing that and what do we do with the rest? And so it's, um, it is where, you know, I've come to really believe that, that brand and brand identity and the language that we use. I mean, that's, it's, it's, that's DNA work. You know, it's not about a marketing slogan Mm -hmm. and such. It's actually really the, the true reflection of the inside of the organization. And I felt that it was a real reflection of an authentic aspiration and dedication that we had, but not necessarily an accurate reflection of the outcomes of the work that were happening on the ground. And so it pushed me um, to take the organization through a pretty dramatic process of internal reflection and evaluation on how much of our work was truly centered around poverty alleviation in a way that we could demonstrate unequivocally and how much of the work was well-intentioned, delivered with wonderful customer service, but really in that space of remediation, putting Band-Aids mm-hmm. on the, the issue, making poverty more tolerable, which frankly, I don't have any issue with. Sure. I'm, I'm all about mitigating unnecessary yeah. suffering. I think that matters. That, though, isn't what we at Lyft said we were aiming to do. Mm-hmm. There was something more there. And um, over the course of the last five years, it's transformed our strategy and the way that we do what we do. I want to ask you about some of the changes, but the, I think you said something that would be an important lesson to a lot of leaders out there hear the word brand, and they think that's all about your logo and your tagline's just a slogan, and it is all at the surface. And what you're saying connects to an idea in that comes from the world of marketing that a brand makes a promise. And mm-hmm. what I hear you saying is we want to make sure we were living up to that promise not just putting it out in the world. Mm-hmm. So you really felt that it was, that's what it sounded like to me, like you're making a promise to the world and you make sure you're keeping it. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. starting with our own staff. And I think that's where the seeds of some of the discomfort <laughs> yeah. were of, you know, the people working in our offices looking at this phrase, working to lift people <laughs> out of poverty for good every day and both connecting to it, saying yes. That's what we want, yeah. But also feeling some that that pit of the stomach discomfort of I'm not sure in actuality in every case that's what we're doing and how do I contend with that and I think um, the important thing was that we were in a position to surface that discomfort I mean I think that's where great leaps come from Mm -hmm. you know is that sense of wanting more and in that way I have no regrets about naming our aspiration and putting it out there. 
the risk comes though if you don't actually follow suit yep. on <laughs> on that and i mean my gosh we see that in so many aspects of society right all right but we were never going to be an organization that was going to have any comfort with a sense of false advertising sure um, that's just it maybe sometimes to our own peril, honestly. <laughs> that we just you know have such a profound need to feel we're living up to anything we put out in the world. Sure. And so, um, so yeah, it's it it it's an interesting idea of brand and the articulation of aspiration actually pushing pushing the reality, pushing the strategy mm-hmm. um, on the ground. And you said it was transformational. What mm-hmm. changed? Well, so the um, the conversation that was really sparked by, I think, people's embrace of and discomfort with the new tagline resulted in a year-long process that I led the organization to. Um, we, we called it our Nimawashi process. That's, uh, it was inspired by a... really a Japanese change management philosophy called Nimawashi, which means root laying. The notion being that in a lot of Western cultures, we have this kind of, in some ways, macho approach to change management, which is all about the unveiling and the big reveal, (laughs) which in fact goes entirely counter to how any human being likes to have change happen. We like to be a part of change. Mm -hmm. We like it to be gradual. We like to adjust. Um, and so I think there's this kind of more Eastern inspired tradition of, of engagement through change and starting with the spark of how much do you feel we're living up to the words on the wall? Hmm. Um, I engaged in a year of conversations going around the country, literally in person, spending time with every member of our team, every critical stakeholder, volunteers, AmeriCorps members, clients whom we call members. Um, having a conversation about if we've stated this is our aspiration and we agree, let's reconnect that we agree this is what we want to do, how much are we living up to it and what would have to change and what we're doing day to day to get there. Um, I think these can be dangerous conversations to have in organizations, you know, to have highly committed mission-oriented field staff who are doing the most important and toughest work of society for less compensation than they could get be in a place to say things like i know that some of the work that is most gratifying to me is not though actually meaningfully moving this person's life forward mm-hmm. meeting needs but not breaking the cycle yeah yeah and i wonder sometimes if they'd be better off spending their time <laughs> on other things that they need a different kind of clinical intervention than what we're doing with Mm -hmm. them. I mean, you know, opening up deeply honest conversations like that, you know, I love the work that we do, but if I'm going to die trying to do something, I want to really be able to demonstrate that we dramatically changed the lives of the people that we were working with. So being able to start getting this, this, internal conversation going and I, I should say that I think the conversation was highly enabled by the prior very deep five years of work that we had done around racial equity mm-hmm. within the organization so there was this kind of meeting of the equity work with the brand work that put mm-hmm. us in a place to internally be able to have really honest conversations around 
um, how we were living up to our values, living up to our aspiration and able to make change. And the, the ultimate outcome of that year of root laying work um, and pretty deep subsequent strategy work was that we decided to pretty dramatically hone our program model. So we started, the initial spark as I shared was this work that I did in the context of early childhood with parents, disproportionately moms feeling like, gosh, it seems like a no-brainer that if we want to help kids escape poverty, we've got to invest in their parents. Better yet, if we can do that in the earliest years of life. Mm-hmm. Fast forward 15 years to when we were having this discussion in the world of brain and behavioral science had just exploded in terms of our understanding of the powerful opportunity of early childhood, but also of the early years of parenting in terms of brain and behavioral change opportunities, executive function development, attachment, positive parenting, all of this work that yields lifetime gains for kids, educationally, economically, in terms of mental and physical health, chronic disease, et cetera. And so we, you know, the space that we had started out in was really all the more compelling, but we as an organization really hadn't put guardrails around the kind of work that we were doing. The spark was in early childhood with families, but we had been open eligibility. And over time, what we had seen was this um, very, this diffusion of our work So that we were working with this huge range of populations um, that had really different needs. So, you know, large quantities of individuals who were um, long-term chronically homeless, older men facing probably mental health and chemical addiction issues alongside 20-something-year-old modern tech-savvy poor moms who were at the beginning of their career aspirations mm-hmm. and you know trying to figure out how do we actually do right by all of these populations and if we are going to break the cycle of poverty for good where can we as one organization really have the greatest impact caused us to say you know we need to return to our roots and get back to our really focused mission around supporting the particular needs of parents and primary caregivers in the early years. That's where we as Lyft can have the greatest impact. It's not to say all people don't deserve sure. great supports, mm-hmm. but some it was saying if our aspiration is to lift people out of poverty for good, that's where we at Lyft are going to have the best shot of achieving that. Mm-hmm. But also some of it was just organizational maturation to say the all things to all people thing is wonderful and in its own way naively aspirational but it's not achievable Mm -hmm. and we need to make sure that every person is getting the right kind of support clinical care and for lift we were going to really be able to do right by this um, population of parents and caregivers of very young kids and so we've completely honed our work to target that population which again goes to our roots but it was coming home in a way Mm -hmm. bolstered by everything that we now know about the science behind the work um, and also just the you know the the opportunities to really rally behind young families and young parents who yes may have a lot of challenges but who also have so much drive strive and are the workforce that this country needs modern families with 
great potential again mm-hmm. to really be the um, the the you know the, the foundation of our country going forward, and that speaks to the second part of the for good piece. Yeah. Of this is really for the greater good of society, mm-hmm. for us to make sure that these um, these families and these parents really can be in a place to meet our workforce needs, but also transform the lives of their kids who are mm-hmm. going to be the next generation of leaders. Yeah, I've, I've, you said something that I've heard a lot of other leaders say too about being aspirational, thinking big. That's what gets people motivated and inspired and excited, but it also it sparks tough conversations. So you want goals that are ambitious but achievable, and that often requires results and focus and actually sharpening your focus on what you can really achieve um, in a significant, meaningful, measurable way. And it's often not all things to all people. There's different ways to think about what's aspirational here. Um, Lots of times people think it's about numbers and scale um, versus what I'm hearing here, the permanence of the solution, the break, literally breaking that cycle. Yeah. And I think for us, proximity to proof was important. So what I mean by that is I think there are organizations and efforts that will very decisively say they are breaking the cycle of poverty. And the what they do about it might be they raise money mm-hmm. and give it to organizations like Lyft who are doing the work. Or what they might do is they might um, provide professional attire. Mm-hmm. To individuals going for job interviews, all of that is good. There is a much longer chain of causality mm-hmm. that you've got to go down to say, well, how does that actually tie to the end game? Yep. We could very well have taken that approach. I mean, we we had the entire logic chain in, in everything we've ever done over time to directly get to that end point of the theory of change, yep. as it were. And for us, for me, um, I wanted a lot fewer steps between our actual work and the demonstration of, of evidence. And so what we did in this process was we, in essence, you know, pushed the goalposts way out. I mean, mm-hmm. we made the standard of proof and evidence a lot higher for ourselves. So we're actually going to prove that we're doing this. Yep. And uh, we now are. But it's required a tremendous amount of focus and discipline to hmm. do it. But what keeps folks coming back is that sense that um, what we are doing, and we can actually touch and feel it and demonstrate it, is transformative. Um, it's not a referral service where then claiming breaks the cycle of poverty. We're actually doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, are, we are seeing the socioeconomic change in real time. Yeah. And some of what's incredible about that is that we've demonstrated over these last couple of years that it's possible. Hmm. So to the point of fighting the intractability, you know, for our lift families are seeing household income gains, uh, debt reduction gains, savings development gains, uh, credentialing and educational attainment gains that tie to wage earnings over time that actually mean we, are, we will demonstrate um, that they can exit and stay out of poverty and all the work that we're doing on, as we call it, the hope and love side of things, that is what really ties to positive child development, um, means that their kids have a real shot at mobility. We're doing this on the order of the tens of thousands 
the need is in the millions. Mm-hmm. So now the question for us is how can we, through narrative change work mm-hmm. and through policy engagement and field level engagement, actually prove this this thing we've convinced ourselves is intractable and too big to talk about poverty in this society? Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So aspirational thinking um, has been uh, a really key part of uh, transforming the organization, focusing um, your efforts and your strategy. But I also learned it was also part of the program itself. When somebody comes in the door, a member, as you say, um, to start working with your team to lift their family out of poverty, aspirations come into play. Tell us about that. So we talk at Lyft about our special sauce being hope, money, love, this combination yeah. <laughs> um, of that we, we have it up on our walls and mm-hmm. neon and such. Um, and I think our belief is that any kind of human transformation, no matter your, 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 your class, your race, anything, does have to start with a sense of hope. And that the way it plays out in our work, so we use a, a coaching model to actually engage with, with parents directly over the course of what's typ- typically in a fairly intensive two-year engagement with us that's entirely centered around um, the, the naming of passionately held family goals and then building from there a very actionable plan to start working on that. But it all begins with people naming goals. Now, not everyone who is living, again, in this the, the hamster wheel of poverty, which, by the way, today in 2018 American society, the story of poverty is a story of work. Yeah, It is a story of the working poor. There basically is no welfare yet mm-hmm. left. Um, there basically is no welfare left. And so people are working multiple jobs yep. they're trying to get credentials to get ahead they're taking care of their kids so so much of the being stuck is this massive overextension and profound time scarcity mm-hmm. to be able to think aspirationally I mean it's really hard hmm. to think about the next horizon when you are in that place of life and I think again take class out of it and any of us can relate to those high stress periods in life. Um, where you just you can't think beyond the immediate thing. I remember sure. when I first had, you know, in, in first had my kids. You know, those first couple of crazy weeks and months. It's like, am I gonna take a shower or take a nap? Right? You know, I can't think beyond that. But really, it's just you're in such a state of acute stress and exhaustion. You mm-hmm. can't think beyond it. So. A lot of the trick for us is how do you actually get people into a mindset mm-hmm. of being able to think aspirationally? How does our office need to look and feel? What's the bedside manner of our coaches need to be? I mean, everything to get people into a space where they can start to decompress. We started to do more work on the front end of meetings around stress reduction, breath work, Etc. That that really came out of our operation on the south side of Chicago, where hmm. families are facing such acute trauma based on the community violence to even kind of get to us to start working with us. That mm-hmm. they are just so stressed that we've got to help people de-stress to begin thinking about okay, where do you want to go? The other amazing lever is kids. I mean, one thing I think you do find is that even in communities that 
exhibit a lot of hopelessness, people can find great hope through their kids of saying, you know, I want my kids to go to college. That's the number one goal that everyone comes in with. And hmm. we're talking about parents disproportionately with kids zero to eight, but really mostly even younger, you know, on the mm-hmm. zero to three end. And that's the number one goal people have is they want their kids to go to college. And you told me a story about, and which you said was also supported by some research showing that parents starting to think about the aspirations for their kids could also think about aspirations for themselves. Absolutely. Tell us a story about that. Well, so I, um, two years ago or so, met one of our members in the Bronx, Marbella, who is a mom of, at the time, a year and a half year old. And she was working multiple jobs, typical story and such, had come from a family where no one had achieved a college degree. I think I kind of had a mindset that education was never really for her, but she felt very passionate that for her daughter, getting to college was the number one goal um, to the point that one of the early things that she wanted to work on with Lyft once we had conveyed our kind of menu of services to her was setting up a college savings account and starting to put a little Hmm. bit of her very meager earnings into that to contract with that aspiration, which is amazing. And what she shared with me was that the course of really thinking about wanting her daughter to go back to, wanting her daughter to go to college made her think about her own educational journey and how can I be a role model for my daughter if I haven't finished school and actually I would really like to finish school it's <laughs> not just being a role model that would make me feel good and that would allow me to make money to afford college and that through telling a different story than society had told her about what could happen for her daughter she started to tell herself a different story about herself and huge light bulbs went off for me there Supported now we know too by by the brain science as you point out. She's an amazing researcher and friend named Sarah Watamura out of the University of Denver who's written this seminal work called Two Open Windows, which is about the you know the window of brain development for both babies and parents. <laughs> Um, and it's not just biological moms. It's also you know, anyone who is involved in caretaking for little kids, disproportionately for moms. But we've spent so much time focusing on the transformative opportunity of early childhood for kids. We don't actually pay attention to the opportunity for yeah. parents. It's a huge opportunity to harness aspiration uh, because, again, of the, the opportunity to spark hope through kids, the opportunity to um, inform and shape executive function around things like goal setting and planning, Mm -hmm. that you can see evolutionarily how it makes sense. That once you've got to protect a kid, actually you're able to think a lot more about Hmm. how am I going to access the things that are needed to make sure this kid is safe. And that is core to what is now our theory of change at Lyft, which is if we invest in the aspiration and determination of parents in the early years using, I think, the real in of what they want to see for their kids, there's amazing opportunity for the parents themselves to transform their lives. And we're, we're seeing that hmm. now played out in, in our results. So. so I think hearing a lot of this, um, people who lead organizations of all kinds want to say, I want to get me some of that aspiration. I want to tap into aspiration is what you just said. Because what we've heard is, you started with sort of a communications exercise. How do we talk about what we do? And that 
trying to live up to the aspiration you're expressing, started internal conversations. It's also key to your actual programs. Um, so for leaders, like I want to understand how I can tap into aspiration for the work I do. Do you have any thoughts or advice for them? Well, it can't feel cheesy. It can't feel like platitudes. Mm -hmm. It's got to be real. (laughs) And I think the the way to get there is through through proximity to the work. I think that's for me what continues to bring me back to my aspiration. The leader being close to the work. The leader being close to the work, the Mm -hmm. staff being close to the work, the actual, um, again, you know, where possible, the work of the thing itself (laughs) and getting closer to um, what the stated aspiration is. I think if there are too many links on that chain of causality mm-hmm. between what we're doing and what we say the aspiration is, it yeah. probably becomes hard to maintain it, especially when the surrounding environment can feel very demoralizing. So I think that is one piece of advice. The The other thing is just that has been so helpful for me. I think we used to be afraid to talk about hope and to talk about love, hmm. even though that's at the core of what we do, because again, it felt kind of cheesy, yep. or maybe inappropriate. It didn't jive at all with foundation speak, which is often very wonky, technical, acronym-laden academic terms. Yep. And I think for a long time, we felt we had to adopt that lexicon which, P.S., then none of our members could relate to. Right. We were like, okay, we're code shifting between how we talk about the work with certain <laughs> audiences and everyone else. And I think some of um, what's happened for us, I mean, we've gotten more confident as an organization convinced, but also um, we, we made it our mission to build data sets find the research <laughs> and all of that to prove, and I think we have, that aspiration matters it's everything <laughs> and we you know one of the things we also did when we put this uh, tagline of lifting people out of poverty for good out there was we were in the process of building an evaluation system fueled by our own constituents it's our constituent voice system so our members actually are providing feedback to us where we were asking questions that you don't typically ask in a traditional case management system, which is about income levels and housing security and all that. We've got mm-hmm. all that, but asking questions about um, people's state of mind, whether they had role models they could lean of, lean on, social connectedness, these mm-hmm. things that sometimes get, I think, pe- pegged as soft. Yeah. But once we started to triangulate that data with the objective economic information we started to see you know an enormous amount of relationship between people's feelings of hopefulness and self-efficacy and aspiration and connectedness and whether or not they were achieving their economic goals and i think that the brain science um and you know growing confidence in our gut and just listening to our members when we ask them what's different about Lyft? Why do you keep coming back? Because just to give you a a little bit of perspective, our retention rates for families are on, you know, on the order of 70%. Mm -hmm. And typically, if you look at 
you know, one benchmark might be Head Start administrative data around parent engagement programming and that the retention rates tend to be below 20% or so. So that's a big gap of just saying, why are you coming back? And what parents tend to say is, I feel treated with dignity and respect at Lyft and I feel hopeful. I want to keep coming back. <laughs> yeah. And so aspiration is everything. It's not, it's not cheesy. And for us too, we break that aspiration for families into achievable goals. So to your point about it's got to be aspirational but achievable, mm-hmm. that matters at an organizational level, but it also matters in the work with our families. Um, but I think so much of social services, I think so many of our kind of human services programs are designed around lowest common denominator of thinking. Here are a couple of crummy low-wage work options that you can choose between in disappearing fields, things like that. I mean, I would say we should be asking more of ourselves and channeling aspiration on behalf of our families to say, if we believe they can achieve a lot more and they believe they can achieve a lot more then we should be setting the bar higher, particularly if we're doing work that hits up the core of racial and economic and social justice in this society. Absolutely. Um, Last question. You're starting a new chapter, I believe. Um, What's next for you? So I announced about four weeks ago that this year, which is our 20th anniversary year at Lyft, will be my last serving as CEO. It's time for us to pass the torch and let a new leader take on the next 20 years of our work, which, as I said, I think will be building off of the foundation of the last 20 years in our direct service work and pushing very heavily into more field level and systems change work, which is exciting. I'll stay on as a founder and senior advisor. And then for me, I don't yet know. I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to spend some time with my own young family and figure out the next chapter. It will be continuing to fight for for racial and economic and social justice. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done right now. So I don't know, any listeners are welcome to come to me with ideas. But <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, but first, first, some time off. Yeah, you deserve it. Well, thanks so much. Thank We're looking you. forward to what comes next. Thank you.